Good morning. Oh, it is good to be among you. It is sweet to be among you. You love to talk about the gospel. I have noticed the word is on your lips and in your hearts, and uh, I just love sharing it with you. Here and also in all the conversations that I'm so enjoying uh, hearing some of your stories and how the Lord is so evidently at work among you here. It's a real privilege to be a little part of that for a little while. And it is a joy to be digging together into God's word, uh, aiming to get even a better taste for its delights, for its sweetness, for the glories of our Redeemer that it reveals from beginning to end. We're exploring a taste of the poetry together. Last night we digested the poetry of a psalm that penetrates our fearful hearts and helps us learn to trust this God who is for us through his Son. I do find that poetry is the genre that people identify uh, with least in the Bible and the, and the genre for which people seem really to appreciate some time spent in noticing and processing. We're so used to reading the Psalms, uh, the Psalms especially, in a way we think of as just devotional. You know what I mean? Um, just, just kind of getting the inspiring spiritual nuggets. We're also used to thinking of the Psalms as mainly for the purpose of comforting and expressing our own private individual hearts. Uh, which is certainly the case. The Psalms minister to our own private individual hearts. But we noticed last night the, the communal sort of worshiping context of the Psalms. And we saw in Psalm 56 how the psalmist was actually pulled out of his own inner fears and into that community of worshipers by the end. We're about to read a psalm that reaches in and pulls us out of ourselves in a dramatic way. This Psalm 138. It's a large, stretching vision in this psalm. This is good for us. Uh, we're sometimes happier just focusing on our own insides, aren't we? Just taking an endless series of spiritual selfies, so to speak. Now, the danger, of course, is that if we focus just on our own hearts, we can get lost in there. And many people do. And many of the voices around us these days are, in fact, telling us to look deep inside ourselves, to focus on our own inner experience and to stay there. You probably are as aware as I am of the voices around us, perhaps especially around women these days, urging us to get into ourselves and, and not just voices way out there in the secular culture, but sometimes even closer in, you know, calling women to focus on who we are. Uh, here are some phrases from close in uh, from the Internet. Focus on who we are, release our potential, listen to our longings for significance, embrace our doubts, dream the dreams in our hearts, and on and on. Now, of course... 
we do have to look inside. There's work to be done in there, isn't there? And in fact, the Psalms help us to do that work by the power of the Holy Spirit as we pray uh, with the psalmist for God to search our hearts, uh, to make the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in his sight. Uh, But for what purpose does God work this heart conviction among his people? What is God after? My husband and I have kind of a theme phrase. It's a theme question that has sort of grown up between us over the years. You know how sometimes you have those repeated questions or phrases that are sort of key phrases, catchphrases in a friendship or in a marriage. Uh, This one started um, pretty early on in our marriage on one particular occasion when we were having um, an argument. We're good at that. We're a little hazy on the details. It's been a few decades ago, but we were, we remember kind of going after each other, arguing heatedly about something. And at one point, one of us, we're not sure which one of us it was, stopped and said, what are we after here? And that question just stopped us. Uh, Because when you're arguing like we were arguing, you're not after truth. You're not after understanding and encouragement. You're not after showing the love of Christ. You're after only one thing, and that is winning. (laughs) Winning decisively over the other person. So with the question, what are we after, came one of those blinking light moments when we suddenly saw how utterly ridiculous We were acting in light of what we were supposed to be after. And in fact, what we both truly wanted to be after. And somehow, ever since that moment, in the best of times and in the worst of times, up pops the question, okay, what are we after here? As we let the word do its heart work in us, it is good to ask, what are we after? As we read the Psalms, we actually glimpse repeatedly what we're after. As we see the focus in the Psalms, you notice it more and more the more you read them. As you see the focus turn repeatedly toward God himself, the person of God himself, celebrating who he is and what he's done. That was the whole answer to the throbbing fear of Psalm 56, wasn't it? Turning from the relentless fears attacking me and filling up my thoughts to the God who is for me, whose word I can trust and even praise in the midst of fears. God, whose word I praise. Praise is a large something to be after, isn't it? We're looking at a second psalm now that shows clearly what we're to be after because it shows what God is after. And God's purpose is large, as large as himself. God's purpose is that his praise will fill not just our hearts, but the whole earth. It's really true. It's not all about us. God is not just a nice friend who wants us to have happy hearts. God, we know, is the glorious king of the universe who demands the full allegiance of our hearts and the hearts of the people he's calling from all the nations. 
So what are we to be after? The glory of God to fill the earth. Are you after that? This glorious God is after big time praise. So Psalm 138 teaches us to be after what God is after. It's a psalm of praise that enlarges our hearts, kind of stretches our hearts to take in the very universe-wide purposes of God for his glory, even in the midst of our very real, concrete, daily, struggling lives. That's what Psalm 138 does. It's a psalm of thanksgiving that will send us out this morning singing big praise to God. Now, before we actually hear it, let's first notice, um, as you look at the text, let's notice the shape of the psalm. That's what we're going to look for um, somewhere in the beginning of our observation process, right? Because this psalm's shape, I think, is meant to be the shape of our lives, This psalm has a center that holds it together. It's really beautiful. The center is verses 4 to 6. Those middle verses are the centerpiece of this poem, verses 4 to 6. And they are about the glory of the Lord among the nations of the world. Now, if you look at those verses 4 to 6, just sort of send your eyes through those lines, you notice that there's no first-person I in those central verses. There's no I in the center of this poem. The I sections surround the center. In fact, they're held together by the center. So this psalm offers us a picture of how our own little lives are meant to connect with and center on the glory of God. Let's hear it. Psalm 138. This is the word of the Lord. Of David. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. For they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. At the very heart, the very center of this poem is what? The glory of the Lord. Did you see it? Verse 5 just kind of says it right out there in the second line. Great is the glory of the Lord. So the glory is in the center, shining out. That's what glory does. 
glory might be defined as the shining out of God's very being. Glory. This is the glory of the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God who redeems his people. What we have here in this centerpiece of Psalm 138 is David's inspired vision. Look at verse 4 and following. It's David's inspired vision of all the kings of the earth giving thanks to the Lord, singing his praise. God's glory is so great that it will have the praise of every king, that is, every nation. This central picture here in Psalm 138 points us far ahead, doesn't it? Are you thinking far ahead to the magnificent scene of worship described in the book of Revelation uh, to a gathering where all the nations of the earth will be represented in that great combined heavenly worship around the throne. I mean, look at the details here. Look at verse 4. The, these kings are giving thanks to the Lord. Line 2, they've heard his word. Verse 5, they're singing about his ways. Sounds like a big worship service, doesn't it? What does this make you think of? Our thoughts can't help but stretch to the very end of the Bible where the book of Revelation pictures a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That passage in Revelation 7 rises to a great climax as all the voices around the throne sing out blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That scene is where the whole universe is heading, isn't it? It's what we're after. God's glory filling the earth. How amazing that the Psalms anticipate that scene, that promise, that promise that reflects the promise made way back in Genesis. Do you remember what God promised Abraham? It's back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. God promised Abraham not only blessing for himself and his descendants, not only a land, but also that through his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. The scriptures stretch out from that point to tell the story of Jesus, the promised seed who finally came and who on the cross accomplished our salvation, a salvation that in these last days of redemptive history is spreading out among the nations. It is happening even now, isn't it? The kings are coming to the throne. The gospel is spreading fast among the nations. We are heading fast toward this great final worship scene when all the nations will finally give God glory. And at the center of all the worship, as Revelation shows, and at the center is the lamb, the lamb who was slain but who is alive, that is Jesus, our risen Lord, who died for us the final perfect sacrifice atoning for our sins and who lives, who is right now at God's right hand in heaven and who will come again in all his glory. This is the great reality at the center of the universe. 
Sometimes we're so oblivious to that great reality as we live our little daily lives, aren't we? But this is where, according to God's word, human history is headed toward the glory of God shining through a people called out from all the tribes and nations of the earth, a people who've heard and responded to God's word. That's what Psalm 138 is pointing pointing to there at the, at the very heart of this poem, lifting our eyes to the fulfillment of God's promises for the nations of the earth. But here's the question. What does this vision of God's glory here at the center of Psalm 138 have to do with us now as we walk along the paths God lays out for us? Everything, right? Another way to ask that question is to ask how this psalm holds together. So we'd better look and see what's on either side of the center, right? Sandwiching the center. What's on either side are the I sections. Uh, Not the vision of many kings giving thanks, but rather one king giving thanks, right? King David, who begins, I give you thanks, O Lord, with a whole heart. Before the gods, it's kind of a strange little phrase there in line two, suggests a public arena. That might refer to angels. It might refer perhaps to other nations' false gods. In any case, the point is that David is aware of a larger audience watching him, whether in the heavens or in the nations around. And he invites that audience to hear, hear his song of praise, his offering of thanksgiving to his Lord, his Yahweh God of steadfast love and faithfulness. He's bearing witness. We don't have time to dig into every detail, but just notice how this first section, verses 1 to 3, exalts the Lord God. David's whole heart is taken up with praising God. His little individual worship matches, resonates with the big worship at the center. He's centered on the Lord God. Notice how he weaves mention of God's name through his expression of praise. In verse 2, I give thanks to your name. And then in the final line, your name and your word. God's name, Yahweh, represents his very character and being to his people. That name is associated regularly with the attributes mentioned here. Steadfast love, faithfulness. These are the unchanging attributes of a compassionate Lord God who covenants to redeem his people, just as he promised Abraham and Moses and David. His promises are eternal and unfailing. And King David is celebrating that here in his place in the flow of all these promises. You know, only at the very end of this opening section does he finally get to the fact that he's been in trouble and God has answered his prayer. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't the first thing on his lips. God's name and God's word that reveals his name were the first things. They were the first bursting content of his praise. The opening to the psalm is like a lesson in God-centered worship, wholehearted worship. Did you hear that? Verse 1, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. What a prayer to pray. Oh, this psalm asks us to pray so many things. 
It asks us, first of all, to pray that we would have whole hearts of worship like this. It asks us to repent when we don't. But he does get down to his personal testimony, doesn't he? And what is that testimony in verse 3? On the day I called, you answered. He's testifying that he's been in trouble and God has answered his call for help. And the parallel line there, got to look at the parallel line, right? Is telling us how God answered. So what does that parallel line in verse 3 say? Does it say God sent away all his enemies? Does it say God healed him of all his diseases? No, it doesn't say anything like that. How did God answer him? My strength of soul, you increased. The Hebrew for that line apparently means more literally, you made me bold in my soul with strength. This is beautiful, and oh, how we need to hear this. What David acknowledges as God's answer to him is not any physical resolution of his circumstances, but rather the resolution of his soul. You answered me, God. You strengthened my soul. In my weakness, you made me strong in my soul. This beautiful verse has made many commentators think of the resonating truth from the Apostle Paul. Perhaps some of you are thinking of it. uh, Who in 2 Corinthians 12 tells of asking God to remove whatever that thorn was um, that was tormenting him in the flesh. But Paul says the Lord told him, What? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul goes on to say he'll boast of his weakness so that the power of Christ might rest on him. So for the sake of Christ, he's content with weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong, says Paul. My strength of soul you increased says the psalmist. How do we know David's trouble didn't go away? Because on the other side of the center section there in verse 7, he's still walking in the midst of trouble. See? Isn't that a wonderful little phrase, in the midst of? Describes so much of life, doesn't it? Describes the life you're going to return to this afternoon. You're in the midst of life. But in the midst of it, David gives testimony to his Lord, who, as he goes on in verse 7 to say, preserves his life, stretches out his hand to deliver him, shields him from his enemy's wrath. Notice the repetition of God's hand there in verse 7, two times stretched out in the third line, then delivering him in the fourth. He is enfolded, surrounded by God's hands here, even though he walks in the midst of troubles. How can we explain the strength of soul in David? How did God increase this strength in him, as he says? How is David able to give thanks wholeheartedly like this, walking in the midst of trouble? What's the key? The key is the center of the poem. The beginning and end of this psalm are not disconnected from the middle. What's the connection? 
The connection is that David is showing us in the middle the very truth responsible for his strength of soul. Right after he says, my strength of soul, you increased, he goes on to reveal to us what that increase looks like. And you know what it looks like? It looks like a glimpse of the glory of the Lord. It's a glimpse of the glory that's coming. That That's what's pulling his soul up and forward. It's a glimpse of what we're after. It's the purpose, the point of the whole story that all the kings of the earth shall give thanks to the Lord. That glorious middle section ends in verse 6 by coming back down to earth with the mention of the lowly. Did you hear that? Whom the Lord regards. Not the haughty, but the lowly. And that's David. He's the lowly one here who's walking in the midst of trouble and yet giving thanks to the Lord. He's centered on the center, and that's what he's after. Of course, the ultimate lowly one whom God regarded is the son of David, the Lord Jesus, who made himself nothing, a servant despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief who bore all our griefs and carried all our sorrows. There's one final wonderful verse, isn't there, that carries us out of this poem with perfect resolution. The first line of verse 8 is one of those ringing lines, kind of like this I know that God is for me. Here's another one to preach to ourselves. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Can we say that with David? Yes. Think about these words coming out of David's mouth. First, they came true, didn't they? The Lord did fulfill his purpose for David uh, in making him king. And then, of course, in the promised Christ who came from his line, God's word did not fail. And because God's word did not fail to David in bringing the son of David in his line, and so we can say along with David, because we can say in Christ, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Now and forever. We can say these words even in the midst of ongoing trouble. And we can say these words boldly in front of all the world because the Lord owns this world and every knee of every person in it will bow to him and finally give him thanks. That's his ultimate purpose, a purpose he made sure through the salvation accomplished by Jesus on the cross. When Jesus came, he showed us God's glory, didn't he? As John 1 says, we've seen his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Where did Jesus most climactically show forth God's glory? At the cross. At the cross where the sinless Son of God took 
are, are on sin for us, bearing God's wrath, so that we sinful people might be saved from that wrath. At the cross, God's glorious purpose of salvation uh, was accomplished in Christ Jesus. And now the risen Christ, the lamb who was slain but who lives, he reigns in glory. That glory, Habakkuk tells us, is going to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. This glory. That's what God is after. Even as we glimpse it in this psalm, he's after his glory at the center. He will have the thanksgiving of all the kings of the earth giving him glory. It all belongs to him. That's what he's after. And that needs to be what we're after too. And that will hold our lives and our souls together even in the midst of. The psalmist is living in the midst of, in the midst of troubles. And that's really where the poem actually leaves us in the final line. Isn't that interesting? With this cry of David to the Lord, out of the midst of his trouble, do not forsake the work of your hands. How beautiful is it that the last word is given to God's hands? The hands we just saw in verse 7, holding off the enemy's wrath. Jesus suffered that wrath for us finally. And delivering David so faithfully. We can trust these hands, muse on these pictures of God's hands throughout the Psalms. We will walk out of here today in these hands. They are the hands of that God of glory who has regard for the lowly, in fact, who leans down, who reaches down, ultimately comes down to us in Christ, his son. Psalm 38 is a psalm of thanksgiving with a huge center, bursting with the glory of God among all the nations of the world from which thanks is pouring. And sandwiching that center is the psalmist's personal thanksgiving to this God, his witness to God's steadfast love. Steadfast love is actually the glue that holds this psalm together. There it is in verse 2 and finally in verse 8. This is a psalm that wants the rest of the world and the rest of the universe to listen in and hear because it's a psalm that is bursting with the glory of God among the nations accomplished by his steadfast love. So my question to you after working our way through this psalm is... Does this psalm reflect the shape of your life? The shape of your prayers? What's at the center? Does your in the midst of experience connect to the center? Does the worship of your heart resonate with the worship that's filling the universe? even though you are perhaps walking in the midst of many troubles right now, is your soul centered on God's glory? Does that glory actually increase your strength of soul? 
by God's grace and through the power of Christ. Is, is this what you're after? May we leave, may we walk out of here being women who are more and more after that, after showing forth, forth Christ's glory and having it show forth among all the nations of the earth, the glory of the one who died for us. We can be after that because when we call, on the day we call, the Lord will answer us and our strength of soul, he will increase by his spirit according to his word. And then we'll be the ones making those thank offerings. We'll be saying with David, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. And when we say that, when we talk about his purpose, we won't be talking only about little things. We will be talking about everything and all the little things, but we'll also be talking about the big story that we get to be part of. The thanks of all the kings of the earth that we get to join in. The, the praise songs of all those kings that we get to sing along with. The glory, most of all, of the risen King of Kings, the Lord Jesus. We'll be glorying in the purpose of God for his own glory among the nations through his Son. That's the purpose God will fulfill in us and through us. We're living at a time in redemptive history when... God's glory is spreading fast among the nations. We know it. We see it. We see it looking around. This is an exciting time in salvation history as more and more tribes and tongues and nations are, as verse 4 says, are hearing God's word and singing his praise. It's a turbulent time, even as we see civilizations losing their centers and encountering all kinds of chaos, even as we see regularly in the news, even as we see in Paris, even last night and today, as we're seeing in the U.S. right now in so many universities, so much unrest, so much chaos in so many countries of the world. The poet uh, William Butler Yeats in the early 20th century wrote a poem called The Second Coming, interestingly enough in which he tried to express this sense of losing our moorings, losing our center. In, in the most well-known line from that poem, he wrote, Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Sometimes I quote that when I'm in the middle of the chaos of my own little life, you know, in my own little house. <gasps> Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. <laughs> we know that sense in a little way and in a big way in our world today. Things fall apart when the center does not hold. If the center is anything other than the glory of the Lord God of the scriptures, the center will not hold and things will fall apart. But according to these scriptures, the center is sure. Forever great is the glory of the Lord. Forever. And the nations are coming to worship him. We all get glimpses here and there 
in various ways, don't we? You here live among the glimpses. I've been privileged to have amazing glimpses in recent years in the country of Indonesia, where my husband is serving as a consultant to some wonderful Indonesian Christians who are planting Christian schools, uh, as well as hospitals and uh, shopping malls and lots of other things all across the, what, 17,000 islands of that country. Indonesia is full of glimpses of that time when all the kings of the earth will be thanking and praising God because they've heard his word. From classrooms filled with children singing verses from the Bible, some in English, some in the Bahasa national language, some in local languages, to hospitals where Christian chaplains minister to many and have a chance to speak the good news, Uh, to villages in Papua gathering to celebrate translations of the Bible in their own languages and the training of pastors to teach it, Uh, to teachers' colleges in Jakarta where Christian teachers are being trained and sent out near and far. It is happening. We all get these glimpses. It's happening all across the globe in big ways And in little ways, you see it on all sides. You have stories to tell. As we all get glimpses of the glorious purposes at the center of God's redemptive plan. I love the little glimpses as well as the big ones. I love the glimpses that come out in the testimonies that are shared here. As women stand up front and talk and as we sit at tables and talk. I love your stories of discipleship and reading the Bible with one other woman and seeing her come to faith and grow in faith. This is the spreading of the glory. God works person by person to build his church. And as we pray to have eyes to see and whole hearts to follow his purposes, he leads us on, doesn't he? I love the example of a woman named Jan in my Bible study group. I was talking with the leaders about Jan just the other day. She's she's such a good example to me. She came to Bible study to our small group the other morning. And um, she said, she shared with us as we were sharing our prayer requests, that she'd been praying to find someone with whom to share her faith, for the Lord to give her eyes to see. With whom could she share? Because she really felt convicted that she hadn't done much of that. And so um, she was getting to know one of her neighbors who had uh, a a very sick niece, I think it was, in her family. And this woman, Jan, who's a little shy, decided that she would write out Psalm 23 on a piece of paper. And she did that. She wrote out Psalm 23 and she handed it to her neighbor and she said, This is um, a psalm, it's from the Bible, and these are some words that might encourage you as you deal with the sickness in your family. You could read it to your family members, to your niece who's ill, and she just gave her this piece of paper. So the next day her neighbor came back, and her neighbor said, that was really wonderful, do you have any more? (laughs) 
And she said, oh, yes. And she went and she actually found another psalm. Psalms are good for this. Psalms are good for sharing with people, especially who are struggling in soul. Good to share. Good food to share. So she wrote out another one and gave it to this woman, um, who then came back to her again and said, you know what, I've got a Bible. I've bought a Bible. And if you'll just write down the reference, then I can actually look it up and find it. So tell me where to go next. And then the woman said, and so where do you go every Wednesday morning? And um, so Jan in our Bible study group said, so I don't know if I should should invite her to come to our group because, I mean, we're studying Exodus. (laughs) I mean, there's all this blood and sacrifices and should I invite her to come? And um, another woman in our circle said, hey, that woman whom you really should invite to come, that woman was me just a couple of years ago. Somebody invited me. And I just sat here for many months and listened and heard this witness of these women talking about this word, took it in. And the Lord used that word to bring me to faith in Christ. I'm here now with you. Invite your neighbor to come. The glory spreads, doesn't it, as God leads us. And his word is powerful. Any part of his word, any part. The first time I glimpsed that, studying the word with women was in a study of um, the book of Ecclesiastes, which... um, was a little intimidating to me to, to lead for the first time and was intimidating to, to me as someone came who was a visitor who didn't know the Lord and I kind of wished we were studying the Gospel of John instead of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> but the Lord spread his glorious word, his powerful living and active word, convicted that woman's heart of her efforts to seek after wind, to strive for things that are just as fruitless and as temporary as a breath or vapor, as the book of Ecclesiastes shows us so vividly. It's actually a great evangelistic book, as it turns out. As they all are, as it turns out, because Jesus shines through all of them, and the more we read, the more we see it. Our takeaway is clear. Let's walk on in the midst of, by faith, centered with whole hearts, praying for whole hearts, centered on the greatness of the glory of the Lord, revealed fully in his glorious Son, God's word will center us as it reveals our beautiful Savior from beginning to end and as it shows us God's redemptive purposes, what he is after. God's purposes are large, aren't they? Larger than we imagine. As great as the glory of the Lord Jesus who will be exalted among the nations. What are we after? Let's be after that. I also shared with the leaders the other night that 
And I so often think of this. I fly on airplanes a lot. A lot of you do too, right? And, and so as I'm flying on airplanes, I so often think that we're just all of us, like people flying on airplanes and eating our peanuts <laughs> and watching the movies and you know, trying to get comfortable in our seats. And meanwhile, we are hurtling through space at unfathomably quick speeds heading for our destination. And we're just oblivious. <laughs> it is a, a, an apt picture for me so often. Lord, forgive me for being oblivious. You know, for not being after what you're after, Lord. Make my whole heart after what you're after, Lord. So we'll still be walking in the midst of. We'll still have those enemies lurking all around till Jesus comes again. We'll still need to throw ourselves on the mercy of God when we fail. But how amazing that God has given us his word to light the way through. We can let his word penetrate deep as we take it in and trust it and share it. We can offer thanksgiving, big thanksgiving. And know that our little voices will be joining in with voices of all the kings of the earth who will sing the ways of the Lord. Let me finish by reading this psalm again. And as as I read it again, let's just prayerfully hear it together and let it inspire our hearts, our whole hearts, uh, to seek God's redemptive purposes. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. For they've heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Amen.